Hello and welcome to the Use Because podcast. Deeper learning from the best business minds to have ever put pen to paper. So the book, Good to Great by Jim Collins, is an interesting one because it's a book about how some businesses went from uh, being good to, to being great. So, so companies or businesses that already existed, how did they, what was the, at the inflection point, say, where they went from kind of trundling along to, you know, uh, rocket ship growth, what happened? And the reason it's interesting is because this book was, he started it in 1996, I think he released it in 97 or 98 or maybe sometime after that. And uh, some of the companies that are, are you know, uses as, as case studies are now no longer great, They're, they, they no longer exist. And um, probably the, the most famous one is Fannie Mae, which was the, um, I think there are mortgage brokers or real estate or something who, who um, all went sideways when the crash happened in 2008. So I was somewhat dubious about reading this book because I thought, well, is it all just bullshit then? Because all these companies that went from good to great, they are no longer, some of them are no longer in existence. Another one called Circuit City, I think, went to the wall as well. Um, and he, he wrote a follow-up book called, uh, what's it called? I have it here. It says, How the Mighty Fail. I haven't read that one yet. And how the mighty fail is essentially, you know, how these great companies then no longer uh, remain great and actually uh, go bust. So I said, all right, and I'll, I'll read the first one, good to great, and we'll see how it goes. And we'll see, is there is there something for us, all of us, all of you, to learn from this book? And there is. So, so even though some of, the, some of the, the companies are no longer with us, and some got, you know, bought over and, you know, taken over or whatever, there's still, there's still stuff in there, and you'll, you'll be, you won't be surprised to hear that the the, the, the companies that went from good to great at all depended on the people, right? The uh, techniques or the technology or the strategies that they had were all, of course, important and they were you know, well thought out. But one of the things he talks about in the in the third chapter is he talks about first who then what? So let's say it was, a, it was a company that was specializing in um, nuclear energy. Um, I can't remember which. Oh yeah, Nucor was the name of the company, N-U-C-O-R. They were big into nuclear energy and um, they were flailing a bit, I think, at the time. And um, a new leader came in and rather than talking about, you know, how do we, how do we uh, fix or correct the bottom line, he first thought about who are the right people to have on the bus essentially there's no good to 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 these great leaders to their mind there's there's no point talking about strategy and um technology and all that until you've got the right people in the room and the right people on the bus in the right positions and the reason for that is it's actually quite it's quite a, it's interesting because imagine you're in a room with 10 people and uh, they've been with the company for 30 years and all they've ever known is nuclear energy. All they'll talk about is nuclear energy and the bottom line and how do we fix this and how do we fix that. What you probably need is, is fresh thinking. So it's all when a good set up all the time and freeing up people's calendars to say, well, we need to, um, you know, fix the bottom line. You need to have the right people to have the conversation with. So they talk about getting the right people onto the bus and the wrong people off the bus and putting people into the, the right positions, making sure everyone, you know, is thinking about the right thing at the right time. 
So in the book, he says that the the things to think about is 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 who the who questions before strategy, org structure, tactics, anything like that. So and he talks about then you know if if you have a celebrity leader say of a, a company that is parachuted in so some big marquee signing is brought in a ceo and he's gonna or she is gonna fix everything uh if you end up with this genius and he has a thousand helpers and those thousand helpers just do what the genius says well when the genius leaves what happens then so those thousand helpers basically are not going to be able to to step up to the mark most of the time so any growth that you're going to have it should be based on finding the right people first and foremost and what he also says and we we talked about this before in in other books that we've covered on the podcast is when you need a people change just do it right uh, there's a, another book we did called the dichotomy of leadership by jocko willink and leif babin who are um, ex-Navy SEAL commanders. And they so this in this other book, The Dichotomy of Leadership, he talks about how there's two things, like every aspect of leadership has, you know, should I micromanage or should I leave them alone, for example? And it, that's the dichotomy that you're trying to uh, balance the whole time. And he talks about, should I fire somebody or should I continue to, to coach them? Yeah, it's, you know, your guess is as good as mine. Depends on the situation, but uh, in this book, good to great, they have the same idea. Is that when you need a people change, you have to act. That doesn't necessarily mean fire somebody. It could just mean, um, you know, get them some coaching or um, have a, a longer conversation with them, that kind of thing. Anyway, I kind of jumped into the middle of the book there with the first who, then what. But I wanted to get across the point that when it comes to this particular book, uh, there are key takeaways from this book as there are in, in all the books that we cover but it's important to understand that the 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 key takeaways are for you know, all intents and purposes based on people like everything we talk about it used because is that the it's the it's the people that matter it's your relationships with these people he talks then as well about i'm actually going back a chapter now, back to chapter two he talks about level five leadership so he has all these other levels about you know um, what a leader, what a what a level four leader looks like, and level three and so on. But uh, level five leadership is those leaders who people still talk about years and decades later. Uh, for example, they'll do things like making sure that if they are going to leave, that they've set their successor up for success, that they aren't just that genius with a thousand helpers who's the celebrity um, leader being parachuted in. Uh, they they remove their ego from the whole situation so they make sure that whoever's taken over from them is set up for success as well uh, they've as you can probably imagine they they have their ego in check so they have real compelling modesty and um but really driven at the same time and i'm reminded of another book that i mentioned um, a good but it's it's legacy uh, by james Kerr, all about the all blacks and, and he talks about how and actually, there's another book called uh, The Captain Class by Sam Walker. And in both of those books, they talk about leaders are not necessarily the loudest people or the, the most talented players. They're the water carriers. They're the people who'll do the thankless jobs. Um, but they'll also bend the rules right to breaking point in order to win because they're fanatically driven. 
And that's what he says in this book, Good to Great, is that they're fanatically driven, these leaders. Um, any success that comes for the company, they'll they'll push that success out onto the team and say, no, it wasn't me, it was the team. I'm just, who am I? I'm really the, the gobshite in the back. But if there's failure, they'll look at themselves in the mirror and go, do you know what, I, I, should, have, I should have seen that failure coming. It reminds me of yet another book called Extreme Ownership, again by Jocko Willink. And he talks about every single thing that happens on your team that you're responsible for, every failure that happens, even, even if you didn't know about it, it's you have to take ownership for it. And it's a really interesting way to, to approach leadership. That if um, So one of the examples they give in Extreme Ownership is they say that if, if somebody on your team, you know, doesn't fill out a report correctly and now the company has lost a million dollars because they didn't fill out their report properly as the leader that's now your fault because you didn't express to that individual enough how important it was that they fill out that report correctly you didn't impress upon them uh, the importance of it that's it's that kind of thing that they're talking about with, with extreme ownership um yeah, so the, the level five leadership, they are they're not the celebrity uh, leaders that are parachuted in. Generally, out of the companies that they looked at, 10 out of the 11 companies that they looked at, the, the level five leadership came from within as somebody who rolls up the ranks and so they know every aspect of the business. And you hear that a lot about people like who, who start off as, you know, I don't know, the, the pot washer in a hotel and then they become the general manager 20 years later because they've done everything along the way. They understand every facet of the business. So these these level five leaders, they generally come from within and like any of this stuff, it's not an exact science. It's, it's uh, you know, you're looking at statistics which isn't going to be, um, you know, straight line uh, across, the, across the board that there's, there's different things to it. So, just to give you an idea what, what he means by the different levels. So, so level one is um, it's somebody who's a highly capable individual, right? So that's a level one leader. So somebody who's just an individual contributor is what they might call that person. And level two then is a contributing team member. So somebody who's quite good on their team, helps out team members, that kind of thing. Level three is a competent manager. And that's like, you know, there's a difference between managers and leaders. Uh, managers make sure that the trains run on time kind of thing. And level four, that is an, is an effective leader. So somebody who just gets things done, gets things done. With the level five, then, is the person with the vision who can actually motivate people to, to get done whatever needs to be done. Another thing that a level five leader does as well is that they confront the brutal facts uh, but they also have, I guess this is a dichotomy as well. They confront the brutal facts, but they have unwavering faith that they and the team are going to prevail, right? They're going to know, like, we are really in the shitter here, but I have no doubt that we're going to pull it back from the brink and turn this into a massive success. That's the kind of approach that they have. They just have this unwavering faith that everything's going to be fine because you people are awesome, that kind of thing. Uh, so let yeah so level five leadership is it's it's more about how the how the leader sees themselves and how that they then uh, project that success out onto the team as well they talk about some again jumping all over the books or why not um in chapter uh, four they talk about confronting the brutal truth 
they never lose the faith, which I just said. So they they have that unwavering faith that they never they're never going to lose the 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 faith that it's all fixable. And so one of the ways that these level five leaders will uh, ensure that everyone hears the truth or, or the the truth out, I suppose, is with four basic practices, according to Jim Collins in his book Good to Great. One, they lead with questions, not answers. Um, I've said this before, but there was, you know, in a, in a different car- incarnation of uh, views because I was like the traveling salesman going around delivering presentations and, and training into, into companies. I remember meeting a CEO before who um, I was in his office and he was kind of coming in and as we shook hands and he made his way around to his side of the desk, he goes, I believe you're the man with all the answers. And I said, I'm actually the man with all the questions. You're the man with all the answers. And that's a really key thing for any leader to, to be aware of is that there's no point in, in the CEO going in there and, uh, you know, trying to tell people this is how it's going to be. Then you end up being that genius with a thousand helpers and uh, you're not you're, you're not going to you're not getting to any consensus of truth, I suppose. So you have to lead with questions, not answers. You uh, the second thing is you engage in dialogue, not coercion. So, and this is easier said than done, right? There's that great quote from George Bernard Shaw that the the illusion with the or the the problem the problem with communication is the illusion that it's taken place. And so the problem with communication is the illusion that it has taken place. So as a leader, you have to engage in dialogue and not coercion. So you can't ask somebody a leading question you know, to, to kind of make them say them the thing that you want them to say. You have to you have to have a, an open conversation and you have to make sure that they feel safe having a, an open conversation. Um, and by safe, I mean that they don't feel like they're going to be screamed at because they're going to be punished because they, 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 they surface some, some brutal truth in, you know, that, uh, that's their reality, if you like. Third thing then is to conduct autopsies without blame so again this is such a delicate thing for to do as a as a leader is to if something goes sideways a a marketing campaign just you know after three months of of uh, of work it doesn't give the the results that you're expecting to get is you know conduct that autopsy without blame even though it might be really obvious who's to blame you kind of have to think about the, there's a this thing in in NLP and in, in neuro linguistic programming, these things called presuppositions and they're kind of little rules to live by, um, little ways to kind of frames I suppose to see the world through, and one of them is that there is uh, that everyone is doing the best that they can with the information that they have, and if you if you kind of mesh that together with with the idea from extreme ownership that as a leader it's your fault that the marketing campaign didn't go well even if there's one person who completely messed it up why did that happen so you're looking to conduct this autopsy without blame right without you kind of almost have to remove your own emotion from it and make sure that the the people that you're conducting the autopsy with know that that this isn't this isn't a blame game uh you know, if somebody only half arsed it, then why? Why do they only half arse it? What what can we do to make sure that, you know, everyone is fully on board the next time? Maybe they just weren't bought in. Or maybe they were they were being told what to do rather than being asked what, what their opinion was. There could be a million different reasons as to why they were um half arsing it, right? So conduct the autopsies uh without blame. The fourth thing then they say is to build red flag systems 
uh, that mean info cannot be ignored, right? And what that means really is that anyone can raise a red flag. Uh, everybody has permission to raise a red flag. If they think something is going to go sideways, then they absolutely have permission to, to bypass all normal channels of communication and go straight to the CEO or straight to the COO or whoever it is and say, there's a real problem here on the production line of, you know, whatever thing you're working on. And uh, you, ha you have to have that system built that um, people can, you know, pull that cord or, you know, raise that red flag uh, and it absolutely cannot be ignored. That's a, I think that's a huge thing that it empowers everyone to be looking out for, you know, it empowers everyone to be, to be looking out for, for problems, but it also makes everyone feel like they're part of a team. Like I, I have just as much responsibility as a CEO to, to spot things that are going sideways. Um, I think that's a huge one. They also say then that uh, charisma can be a problem and that um, sometimes if, if you have one of those celebrity leaders or one of those geniuses with the thousand helpers, that that person could be quite charismatic and um, overbearing isn't the word, but like, I mean, somebody who's really kind of, um, you know, large in life personality. It, sometimes it can be daunting to bring, to bring that red flag situation to that person you think oh god what if, what if they think i'm an idiot what uh winston churchill did they mentioned this in the book is he had a statistical office and it was outside the normal command and their job was to just bring him facts they weren't to interpret things they weren't to um answer to anybody else they were to just get as cold hard facts as they could and bring them to him on a regular basis so can you think about that for your own business? Or even like if you're just running a team of three people, can you do some version of that where you have a statistical office where, you know, that could be built into the red flag system as well, going, I just want cold hard facts. If you think something is genuinely not going to work or something has started to go wrong on us, you have to come and tell me. But then as a leader, you have to think about your own charisma as well. Like, and it can be, obnoxious to think that you're charismatic i suppose but if you think people do look up to you and are are um, a little bit enamored by it then you have to kind of find a way past it or find a way to to, to give them a way past that that they're not uh, overawed by your charisma either one of the things actually I, f I forgot to mention earlier on about that that company nucor they were big into uh, nuclear energy um and they brought in a guy called Ken Iverson, who I uh, basically did did what what we said a good leader should do is they they face their brutal truths and they uh, put their heads together, got all the right people on the bus first and put all their heads together. And they went on to become the biggest steel company in the USA. So they and actually another great example that just popped into my head there is Nokia or Nokia. If you remember those phones? I think they started off like making Wellington boots or something like that, like maybe a hundred years ago, I've got, I've got my timelines all wrong, but they, they were able to, uh, to pivot when they saw the opportunity. I don't know if it was to do with the, were they making components for the phones or something like some sort of, the, some of the rubber components for the phones or something. They started just making their own phones. They, they spotted the opportunity. And uh, so new core, um, Nokia, uh, companies like that, that were able to get the right type of leadership and, uh, and pivot when they needed to. Yeah, so um, what's next? Let's see. 
hedgehog concept in chapter five. This is a really interesting one because the hedgehog concept is essentially this idea of uh, a hedgehog versus a fox, right? If a fox wants to eat a hedgehog, um, the fox will he'll stalk the hedgehog for a while. He'll look at all the different avenues. He'll see all of the complexity. He'll plan his attack. He's lightning fast. He's fleet of foot. And then he fails because the hedgehog is a very simple solution, right? And when the, when the fox tries to eat the hedgehog, the fox might decide to circle around the back and approach from this angle and, you know, use stealth and all that kind of stuff. The hedgehog is a very simple solution. It just turns into a ball, right? It's a, the idea of the hedgehog concept is just do what you're good at, right? Don't, don't overthink it. And the examples that they give in the book is um, Einstein and, and relativity, right? Which is uh, quite, the, quite the example to give, I suppose, in a business book. But Einstein focused on relativity. What does it actually mean? What does, what does relativity mean? I'll, me being the genius that I am, I'll tell you what I understand relativity to mean according to Einstein. This was the problem that I, the kind of problem that Einstein um, wrestled with. If I'm standing in a field, and uh, it's one of those fields in America, you know, and there's a train line going through the field, and a train goes whizzing past, and I see um, a young boy on the train with a basketball, and it's one of those trains that the whole side of it opens, you know, that they. Um, you know, back in the 1800s or whatever, when people would jump onto the train as was starting to move. What else? There's a boy, don't ask me why, but there's a boy standing holding a basketball. And as I look over to the left corner of the field, the boy drops the basketball on the train. He's standing in the carriage of the train. He drops the basketball to bounce it and just bounces the ball down, back up into his hands. But by the time, the because the train is moving so fast, the distance between when the boy dropped the ball, it bounces and bounces back up into his hands. How far did the ball move? That's what, I, that's, what, that's what Einstein was asking about with relativity. From the boy's point of view, it didn't really move at all. It bounced straight down and straight back up into his hands. From my point of view, if I'm standing in the field, the ball left the boy's hands at the leftmost corner of the field as I'm looking at the field. As the train whizzes past me, the ball bounces back up into the boy's hand and maybe it's moved 100 metres, 200 metres. And that's what relativity is. That's my understanding of relativity. Please bombard me with uh, all the things that I'm wrong about when it comes to relativity. It's relative to the person. It's relative to your to your point of, uh, um, point of reference. Anyway, that's that's the point to get the, the example to give in the book the other example to give then is darwin and evolution he just cared about like how do things evolve they stuck at what they were good at einstein didn't start a podcast right? he he just focused on and actually one of the things einstein said as well it's a great quote is a book by um oh, walter isaacson um, about einstein a biography and i think it's in that book there's a quote from einstein that he says i'm not smarter than anybody else I just stick with a problem for longer. Anyway, the hedgehog. The hedgehog is a very simple solution. Just stick it, sticks at what he's good at. And that's the whole point when it comes to these companies is that they they should know what they're good at. Like if I look around at the thousand people that I have or the three people that I have, what are we good at? What are the things that we should stick at? And what are the things that we should 
what are the things that the, the, the people that I'm surrounded by can do? But then also, uh, actually, do you know what? Before I say the also bit, it reminds me of, um, I'm recording this during the Olympics, uh, the 2020 Olympics in 2021. But in 1998, the Great Britain rowing team, I think it was the, the eight-man rowing team, they decided they were going to try and win gold at the 2000 Olympics. And in order to do that in, in sh- such a short space of time, in that two-year window, they had to rethink everything that they did. And one of the questions that they would ask themselves was, will it make the boat go faster? Everything they did, the type of pillow they used on their bed, should we train now or train later? Will it make the boat go faster? Th- that there, I think, adds into the, the hedgehog concept. What are we good at? Like, what are we, what are we deeply passionate about? Where can we be world beating? Um, where can we dominate? What is like? What do these things, all these these raw materials, these uh, this these transferable skill sets that everyone has, what does it all add up into? It's easier said than done, and, and that's why you have those those conversations about brutal truth, and you also make sure you have the right people on the bus to have the conversation with. And it's okay for people to um, to have shouting matches and screaming and shouting matches if that's if that's what's going to help you get to that uh, get to that north star, if you like. Now I can't remember what the also was. I said I was going to say also something else, but I can't remember now. So it'll come back to me. So there's three things that they, uh, three intersecting circles is what he talks about in the book when it comes to this strategy. One, this is what I said already, kind of like, but just to, to give you exactly what they say in the book, it says, one, what can you be the best in the world at? That's the first circle. Two, what drives your economic engine? Uh, profit per unit or per end user or whatever the thing is. And three, what are you deeply passionate about? So where those three circles interact is probably your North Star. So this this idea, these, these three intersecting circles, is not about your strategy or your goal or your plan or your intention. It's what can you be the best at? The things, and remember, this is for a company that's already up and running. It's already generating profits of some description maybe they're, they're starting to, to head in the wrong direction so if you're going to arrest that uh that decline they're the things you think about what what can we be the best in the world at what drives your economic engine and what are you deeply passionate about and that'll start to give you your, your north star in chapter six then they talk about a culture of discipline uh, they have a great thing here that i had never thought about this before but a bureaucratic culture arises to cover indiscipline and incompetence. And if you think about any company you've worked for previously, if they've got rules after rules after rules, it's because they don't trust people or because there's indiscipline or there's incompetence. And because there's so much incompetence, we have to lead people by the hand and tell them exactly what to do and when to do it. Where if there's a culture of discipline where people are just, so again, just these random things pop into my head. I worked for a restaurant in Toronto many years ago when I was 19 called Marche and one of the things when they so I was only over there for the summer like and I didn't really care but one of the things that always stuck with me was that uh, they instilled this in us in that they had us like in an induction day for 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 an afternoon or for a full day and I remember them saying you are empowered to to wow any customer so if a customer has a problem with with some food that they've ordered or and their drink not being right you have the authority to do whatever you need to do to make that customer go, oh, wow, that's, I wasn't expecting that. 
I that always stuck me going because then what I would do is I would start to look for opportunities to uh, to wow customers to give them free stuff or to you know go, go above and beyond because I was uh, empowered to do it and I think that's what they're talking about here that kind of thing a culture of discipline where there didn't need to be reams and reams of, of policy written out about well if the customer's burger looks like this then you're able to give them that if this happens and you can do that that would happen if somebody was incompetent or they were um, indisciplined but if you have a culture of discipline or, or, or a culture of just trusting people, of course, some people will mess it up and take advantage. But the vast majority of people want to be empowered. So get the right people on the bus and the wrong people off. And discipline is not just about action. It's uh, disciplined people with thought. So like you have to be like, say, if you're having that kind of a conversation with um, with your with your team about what our objectives are for the next 12 months. You have to be disciplined in your thought as well. It reminds me of the Edward de Bono book, um, the, the Six Thinking Hats, where he talks about this. I think I've probably said this before. I'm sure I have, but he had this uh, idea that if it was written today, it was written back in the 60s, I think, or the 70s, this book. But if it was written today, it would be a blog post. <laughs> uh, he, he took the idea of putting on your thinking hat and rather than just you know, everyone trying to think through a problem, everyone would uh, think through a problem uh, in the same way at the same time. So say, for example, should we expand into the German market, right? For Should we take our product, convert it into, into, uh, into German and try to get into the German market? And rather than everyone just kind of talking over each other and saying, that's a great idea, it's a terrible idea, let's think about it in the same way. Tell me everything that's terrible about this idea. So that's a disciplined thought. Tell me everything that you can think of that's terrible about this idea. And then, so that would be one of the colors. Of the, I think that's like the black hat or something. Another hat might be, tell me everything that's brilliant about this idea. Tell me everything as to why it will work. And then another hat, I think the yellow hat or something might have been, um, tell, me, uh, tell me your gut feeling about this. So everybody gets a chance to say what's on their mind. And then one of the hats then is for the, uh, the person chairing the meeting to decide which color hat to use next kind of thing so tell me everything that's good tell me everything that's bad tell me get as wacky as possible i think that's one of them is like get as creative as possible with them um, how to solve the solution or how we could go about getting into the german market and it's a i've i've run meetings with that before and people are like rolling their eyes to begin with but it makes meetings way more efficient and it makes meetings um it, everybody gets to say their piece essentially and uh it's it's anyway it's a good it's a good way of, of of disciplining your thought or to kind of make sure everyone is thinking the same way at the same time and every all the bases are covered as well so um they talk about uh in the book uh, a guy called ray mcdonald who is the ceo of burroughs a company i've never heard of but he was always surrounded by minions right he controlled conversations and didn't let people have um, their own opinions expressed I suppose and he leaves and uh, the place falls apart even though he had beaten the market by whatever it was 6.6% whereas somebody like the, the Rubbermaid CEO Stanley Galt, Galt he asked Doorman about a dustpan so Rubbermaid you know they do all the, the cleaning products and uh, the CEO wanted to take in data from everywhere and he asked a doorman who was complaining about the, the, the dustpan, so 
know, why, what's wrong with that? Why is that not working? Tell me how we can make it better. So a culture of discipline means surrounding yourself with the right people, making sure that you're not um, overbearing with your charisma or your, your input to conversations. I was actually, I started reading a book yesterday that I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a series on, on uh, Ryan Holiday. Um, this is going to be a series. This one actually as well is, is the first of three books I'm going to do on, on this topic of good to great. There's this one, good to great. The next one, um, how the mighty fail. And then the halo effect about, um, manage, yeah, it's about managers and, and how uh, uh, business delusions essentially that, uh, that trick managers or deceive managers. Um, but anyway, I was going, I'm going to do this other series on uh, Ryan Holiday. I don't know if you've heard of him, but he wrote a series of books um, about the Stoic philosophers. Some, uh, the one I'm reading is called uh, Stillness is the Key. It's about finding that, that, that quiet part in your mind. Um, but he talks about how, and I've only just started it, but he talks about how um, JFK during the Cuban Missile Crisis, which was like 11 days or 13 days, where um, they discovered that Russia had built a nuclear base on, in Cuba. And they were aiming all their, their missiles at, at all the cities in America. And uh, all of John F. Kennedy's people wanted him to to meet fire with fire, basically. And, and like, you know, basically get into a race to the bottom where, you know, assured assured nuclear destruction or assured, uh, what's the phrase? Assured mutual destruction, not nuclear. Assured nuclear war, that's what it was. Assured mutual destruction, which is what would happen with a nuclear war. But what JFK was able to do, it's where he kind of, you know, became presidential, supposedly, is that he was able to dial down his charisma and he was able to understand that when he should leave the room because people were not being full and frank with each other because he was there. So in order to let his team have full and frank discussions, he'd leave the room at certain points because he knew his his presence or his charisma was was uh, stifling the conversation. So, um, so... When it comes to a culture of discipline, to get back to my point, uh, it's not just about discipline with action, it's discipline with thought as well, both you as the leader and the people that you're leading as well. So don't be like Ray McDonald, the CEO of Burroughs, who, you know, surrounded by minions, be more like the rubber rubber made CEO, Stanley Galt, I'm going to go with G-A-U-L-T, Galt, Galt, Galt. Ask, ask people, you know, their opinion. Ask the people at the coalface, what's right about this and what's wrong about this. So to, to bring this whole thing home, essentially, um, it's possible for any company to go from good to great. Uh, if they've got the right people having the right kinds of conversations, I suppose, is the, is the bottom line from this book. But it isn't going to be one thing, and it's not definitely not going to be a straight line. We've all seen that, that meme before where what you think success looks like, and it's, you know, from where I am now to success and it's the straight line to what it really is like, where it's a squiggly line going up and down and through a valley and getting on your bike and going on a boat across the, uh, the valley and all that kind of stuff. It's, success is, a, is, is messy and failure is, is, a, is a secret ingredient really in success. So uh, keep that in mind. One thing that I didn't talk about that they talk about in the book is technology and it should be used as an accelerator towards a goal, not the goal itself. So some companies do get... They get so into you know some new piece of tech, whether it's a CRM or um, you know uh, implementing Slack or something like that, 
or Salesforce that they think this is going to solve all our problems. Technology is going to help you get to your goal. The technology itself is not the goal. It's the people that matter more than anything else. They also say that the, the level five leaders are the ones who drive uh, successful transformations. And if you want to know how to find a level five leader, I suggest you go and listen to The Captain Class by Sam Walker and uh, probably Legacy by James Kerr. Um, either read those books or listen to our podcast on it. Um, they'll kind of tell you what to kind of spot. Um, it's not necessarily the most talented person. It's the person who does the thankless jobs, who knows what to say and when to say it, who's driven towards success at all costs, that kind of thing. Uh, the, another thing it says that the right people in the right place are the foundation of greatness. That's, I mean, that's like a, it's like a, like a, a sports team. If you have uh, a great goalkeeper in a soccer match, you don't put him in as the full forward, right? Put him in goal. It was probably the best place to put him and so on, right? You put the right people in the right place. Uh, if you're going to be successful, you're going to have to confront the nasty facts uh, while never losing faith, right? So making sure that you are uh, finding a way to the brutal truth and not just your own brutal truth, but what's put your finger on the pulse by allowing those brutal and honest and open conversations to actually happen. That's what's going to push you from from being good to, to being great. One of the things they say in, in, the, in the book, uh, it's about schools and about how we don't have that many great schools because we have so many good schools, right? Something that's good enough and that's it, that'll do. There's no, there's no desire to push things on to be great unless a leader comes in and decides, you know, to, that, that, that more is possible. I've given this example before as well, but if there's, a, there's, there's four levels of mastery. If you want to master something, really like be the best in the world at it, there's four, there's four stages to that. And I always use the example of fencing, you know, the, the big knitting needle and you wear the, the sieve on your face and you go on guard and you kind of jab people in the stomach with the, with the big knitting needle. Uh, the reason I always use that, I don't know the first thing about fencing. I, that, what I just said there is basically what I know. You wear a sieve and you have a big knitting needle and you say on guard. But there's four levels, right? The first level is unconscious incompetence, right? I don't even know what I don't know about fencing. If I was to go, if I was to go and take up fencing now this afternoon and I got all the gear and I found a fencing club and I said, I want to learn fencing is when I go in the door, I am at the first level of mastery, I, unconscious incompetence. I don't even know what I don't know. Then maybe after four five, six weeks of training, I get to level two and level two is conscious incompetence. I now know there's stuff, there are skills, there are moves, and I don't know any of them. But then I keep going to training. I keep uh, keep uh, listening to my coaches and, and having pretend fights with people. And I get to level three. And level three is conscious competence. I now know four of the main moves you need to know. And I can win a couple of, couple of matches with this. Um, probably won't get to gold in the Olympics. But I can kind of hold my own with these m main four moves. I know I'm consciously competent, right? I'm I'm going to, when I get into this match, I'm going to try this move and this move and I'm going to see how it goes. And that's where most people stay. That's where most companies stay. Is that that level of good? They're consciously competent. We're good at this. This marketing campaign usually works. Uh, this sales script, you know, usually goes pretty well for us. We'll see how, we'll just kind of keep doing that. But to get to the last level, right, which is unconscious competence, 
And that is, it just happens. It just, I get into this flow state. I don't even know how I did it. I just, I came up with this move in fencing that I had never even thought of before. I don't even know how I, what happened. It's that muscle memory kind of thing. And the way you get from level three to level four is deliberate practice. It's like all of the things that we talk about here on this podcast, any of the things from this book or any of the other books that we cover, it's to get to unconscious competence. So get to a point where I'm not even aware of how I'm doing it or how I got to this level of competence. It's through deliberate practice. And that's what a, that's what a great leader is going to do as well, that level five leader, to take a company from good to great. He's going to deliberately practice some of these things. He could deliberately practice or she could deliberately practice deciding to have a statistical office. How will I make sure I only get hard facts about our sales pipeline? Who would I talk to? How would I set somebody up outside of the, the normal chain of command? Or it could be, um, how will I make sure that we have brutally honest conversations without anybody really taking offense? How do I set that up so that people come into this Zoom call, as it probably will be these days, or into this conference room, knowing that we are going to lay it all out on the ground and we're all going to shake hands at the end? Right? How... how how do I do that? How do I, how do I deliberately practice understanding what we're good at, what our product or our revenue engine is, and uh, what we're passionate about? How do I find out those things for my team or for my entire company? Think of it this way. Nike do not sell crisps. They could, but they don't because it doesn't fit into their brand. It's not what they're passionate about. It's not what their product engine is, or their product engine, their, their revenue engine. And it's, they, they won't be the best in the world at it if they start selling crisps. Or there's other people who are better at it than them. So leaders have to create an environment where the brutal facts are aired without hesitation. And they have to have a culture of regular, rigorous, rigorous self-discipline. And just remember the hedgehog, hedgehog concept. Right, The hedgehog concept is what is going to... Uh, help you get from good to great. And that's it. Thanks for tuning in. Talk to you all again soon.